Well, good morning, everyone. How are you all doing today? All right. Uh, well, uh, today we're going to be continuing our study in Acts. Uh, we're going to be in chapter 6 this week, and uh, we're going to see uh, that they are going to be getting their house in order uh, this week from Acts chapter 6, uh, verses 1 through 7. Uh, you know, before I was called uh, to Grace Redeemer Church, uh, I candidated at another church, uh, a Chinese church, uh, that had basically two congregations uh, under the same roof. Uh, there was this first-generation uh, Chinese church, and they uh, spoke Chinese as their native language. They had their own pastor who preached to them uh, in Chinese, and uh, they dressed very formally. Uh, they worshipped very formally, uh, and it was a completely different experience from uh, the younger generation. Now, there was a, a separate congregation, the English-speaking congregation, and I was candidating to be the pastor for the English-speaking congregation, obviously. Uh, and and uh, so this was the first, the second generation uh, folks. They were children of the first generation folks, or they were neighborhood people, but their first language was English, uh, and they were born here uh, in America for the most part, and they had uh, adapted uh, American customs. They were much more assimilated and uh, were much more uh, Native American, uh, or Native to America, I should say, than their, than their parents were. And so you have two separate congregations, essentially, uh, under the same roof. And, and what happened, what I noticed there during my time there, was that there was a clear a division in this church. You had the old guard who wanted things done a certain way, and then you had the younger uh, folks who wanted things done another way. Uh, and the younger congregation, the English-speaking congregation, did not feel like they had adequate representation in the body, which they didn't. They had no membership or, represent, or representation on the elder board at all. Uh, and they also felt like they were the future of the church, and so they thought that they should have an opportunity to be heard and that their ideas uh, had value, and so there was conflict in this church. They were both, uh, they were both American, they were both Chinese, they were both Christian, and yet uh, they were at loggerheads with each other. There, there were issues there in the church that they needed to work out if their church was going to continue uh, to grow uh, and to thrive. And and what what we what we have as we come to a uh, Acts chapter six is really the same kind of thing. We have two different groups. Uh, they're both uh, becoming Christians, but you have Hellenistic Jews, uh, Jews who are not born in Palestine. They're Greek-speaking Jews. And you have Hebraic Jews on the other side, uh, people who are born in Palestine, and they have, uh, they're, they're native to Palestine. That's their homeland. And so uh, Acts chapter 6 is kind of a transitional passage because uh, remember in the beginning we said that, that uh, Acts 1.8 is really a framework for how the entire uh, book of Acts goes, where we're going to see that the gospel is, is going to be spread in Jerusalem, and then to Judea, and then to Samaria, and then to uh, the remotest parts of the earth. Well, we've been in Jerusalem for the first five chapters, and the gospel is about to spread further into uh, Judea and Samaria and the remotest parts of the earth. And so that starts to happen in Acts chapter 6, uh, as we come to the story of Stephen, uh, a Hellenistic Jew, and his story will be told in, in Acts chapter 6 and 7. And then uh, uh, Philip, another Hellenistic Jew, whose story will be told in chapter 8. And then we come, of course, to chapter 9, uh, Saul's conversion. And, and he, of course, uh, is going to take the gospel uh, further than anybody ever took it before. So uh, what we see when we talk about these Hellenistic Jews 
and these Hebraic Jews are, are several differences. And, and we see that, that uh, these Hebraic Jews, they're born in Palestine. Uh, Hebrew is their native language or Aramaic. Uh, they read the Hebrew Bible uh, and they follow Hebrew customs and culture. Uh, but the Hellenistic Jews are born outside of Palestine. Uh, they were scattered from the dispersion, from the exiles that had gone before. Uh, so you have these Jews who are living about uh, the, uh, the, the area because of the Babylonian exile and the Syrian exile. And uh, so these things, uh, the, these people had been scattered. And, and uh, so these, these uh, Hellenistic Jews, they don't speak Hebrew, they speak Greek. And so they read uh, what's called the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. That's their Bible. And they follow Greek uh, customs uh, and culture rather than uh, uh, Israel or Israeli or, or Jewish uh, customs. And, and so these Hellenistic ones would be considered more liberal uh, by the Jewish people. They would be considered to be uh, people who didn't follow uh, those, um, those uh, Hebrew um, customs and culture as, as closely as the Hebrews did. And so uh, both of these folks are becoming Christians uh, at a rapid pace. And there are more and more Hebrew Jews becoming uh, Christian, and there are more and more Hellenistic Jews uh, becoming Christians. And so as, as the church increases, you have more and more opportunity for conflict among these people. And so one of the ways that we see conflict in this early church is in the daily distribution of food. And that's what this passage uh, is about, a fairly mundane topic, you would think, but uh, something that threatened uh, to divide the church. And Luke wants us to see how the early church handled its problems. Uh, you, you notice that it's not all pie in the sky with Luke. Not everything is great and wonderful all the time. Uh, we've seen that with him. And, and, and so he wants us to, to, to see that there are problems in the church. He wants us to see how the early church handled its problems. And he wants to introduce uh, these two characters, Stephen and Philip, to us because they're going to play such a prominent role uh, in the next couple of chapters. Think about Satan. Uh, Satan has tried as, as he can, as best he can, to, de to destroy the church from the outside, right? He's used the persecution of these Jewish authorities to try and stop the increase of this church. And then uh, that didn't work, so he picked up Ananias and Sapphira, and he said, well, I'll try and destroy this church from the inside with corruption and deceit and lying, and that didn't work either. And now he's got a third tactic, and this is a tactic of distraction. If I can get these apostles who should be preaching the word to be worrying about other things, like how we're going to take care of feeding the Hellenistic widows, then maybe I can stop the proclamation of the word and stop people uh, from becoming a Christian. And so Satan has a lot of tricks in his uh, bag of tricks. And so we as well ought to be aware that just because one thing that Satan didn't, uh, wasn't successful in accomplishing his goals in your life doesn't mean he doesn't have other uh, means and ways to try and ruin your life. So that's why Peter tells us to always be aware uh, because he goes about like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. All right, so he wants to destroy this church. He wants to stop them from preaching the gospel. So let's read the passage now and then we'll, we'll glean some lessons from it. Now at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. So the twelve summoned the congregation of disciples and said, It is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. 
Therefore, brethren, therefore, brethren, uh, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. The statement found approval with the whole congregation, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip and Procurus and Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. And these they brought before the apostles, and after praying, they laid their hands on them. The word of God kept on spreading, and the number of disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. So uh, there's a lot of things in this passage, even though it's, it's kind of short. The first thing I want you to see is that a growing church will face problems, and we see this in verse 1. You know, Luke doesn't even say how much time has passed. He only says, in those days. Uh, so it may be very soon after the events of chapter 5 that these events took place. Uh, but most scholars agree that it could not have been uh, even five years since the time of Pentecost that these events took place. And, and recognize that that's younger than Grace Redeemer Community Church, right? Only five years have passed at the most, and, and already they're a growing church, uh, they're facing problems. And so uh, this, what we see today, is going to be a model for how we handle our problems as we continue to grow. Well, one thing is sure, uh, the, the church was growing very rapidly, and, and the number of disciples continued to increase. And, and this here uh, is the first use of the word disciple in the book of Acts. And a disciple simply means a learner. And so you have people learning from the disciples, and then you have people who had been learning from the disciples of the apostles. And so the church is growing and spreading very quickly as people are learning and then they're teaching uh, what they have learned. They're, they're, they're preaching this message of life as the angel of God described it uh, in Acts chapter 5 and, and the whole Christian life, what it's all about. And so that's what's being proclaimed. It's being proclaimed by these disciples and we don't even know the size of the church at this point, but most scholars estimate that this church may have been up to twenty to 25,000 people at this point. That's quite a few people for 12 people, uh, 12 apostles to administer, right? So we come out of Stonebriar Church. Uh, that's a church of about 4,000 people. They have about 100 members on staff. So that's a ratio of about 40 church members to one staff member. Uh, here, you have 25,000 church members and 12 people administering. That's, uh, what's my math there? That's one to about every 2,000 people or so. Uh, so you can imagine that certainly some things were going to fall through the cracks when you have one person responsible for every 2,000 people. That's, uh, that's going to happen. And so one of these things was the daily distribution of bread to the widows. That's one of the things that fell through the cracks. And uh, there were a lot of ways in, in Jerusalem at the time that they, they used to take care of, this, uh, of the need of people uh, that they had. And so one of the things they would do is that they had something that was called the kupa, which was the weekly distribution of bread and uh, clothes, if necessary, uh, to resident Jews. And they had, they had something else called the tamwi, which was the, uh, which was the daily distribution, like an emergent distribution uh, of food to people who were non-residents, like aliens who happened to just be passing through. And what we see here in Acts chapter 6 is kind of a combination of both because we're dealing with resident Jews, but it's being handed out daily because apparently uh, there's a lot of need. And, and uh, scholars estimate that 
up to 20% of these Jews uh, were Hellenistic Jews. And that's a considerable number. And then a considerable number of those Jews were widows. Now, why would that be? Uh, why were these Hellenistic Jews in Palestine to begin with? Um, the rationale for this is that uh, people, when they get older, uh, they wanted to move back to the Holy Land and they wanted to die in the Holy Land. It was deemed to be uh, of value to them to, to die in the Holy Land. And so they would move back and uh, men being generally older than their wives tended to die first and that would leave a significant number of widows. And these are who these widows are. Are there people who have come uh, into Palestine, their husbands have died and now there's a whole lot of widows there uh, who need to be taken care of. And we know that Luke, of course, has a very uh, tender spot in his heart for widows. He mentions uh, widows, he mentions women many times in the book of Luke and uh, in the book of Acts. And we also know that, that uh, widows are very important to God, right? If you read the Old Testament, we're, we're told uh, to take care of widows. And, and that continues on into the New Testament. Uh, several times God says, uh, it is important for you to take care of the orphan and to take care of the widow. And I think one of the measures uh, of a loving and compassionate church is how we take care of our widows, how we take care of our sick, uh, how we take care of our orphans. You know, how, how we love on these people is a measure of how uh, we as a church are doing in terms of loving uh, our people. Um, I think we do a good job of that here. Uh, I know that that when one of us is down, uh, the rest of us rally around, and, and I just think it's a wonderful thing to see and watch and behold, and, and I just love that we do that in this church, and uh, uh, I'm just proud of us. I'm proud of, of how we do that. Uh, but, but one thing that was happening here was that the, the, these Hellenistic widows were being overlooked, and, and we don't know how this happened. Uh, we know that there was a rivalry between Hellenistic and Hebraic Jews, because the Hebraic Jews, of course, they saw themselves as more pure, uh, more devout than their Hellenistic counterparts because they were from Palestine. But uh, there doesn't seem to be any indication here that, that this overlooking was done intentionally. The overlooking itself is a word of neglect, not of intentional harm. Uh, and so whether it was intentional or not, though, uh, these Hebra uh, Hellenistic widows noticed it and they complained uh, and, and I just wanted to say that, that, that the Greek word for complain is just a great word. It's gagizmos. I love that word, gagizmos. Say it with me, gagizmos. Isn't that fun? Don't be a gagizmoser. Uh, you want to just raise concerns in a right way, but we don't want to be gagizmosers. Uh, but anyway, uh, I just think that's a fun word to say, and there's, there's no real significance to me saying that word to you, except that it's a fun word. So... We have these Hellenistic uh, widows, and they're complaining. And, and this is one of several conflict resolution stories that we have in Acts. We see it with Ananias and Sapphira, how that conflict arose, and, and how God resolved that conflict with the death of Ananias and Sapphira. Uh, but what's interesting here is that the church quickly acknowledged the problem, right? They didn't bury their heads in the sand and say that's not a problem. They didn't ignore the problem. They, they said, I recognize this problem, and, and what are we going to do? Uh, they saw that the church was being disrupted. They saw that harmony in the church was, was becoming disrupted, uh, and they attacked the problem. Now, before we think about the solution that these folks uh, arrived at, I, I want us to, to think about Grace Redeemer Community Church, right? We are a small church, but we're a new church, and uh, God willing, we're going to be a growing church. And, and as we grow, uh, 
what's going to happen, what probably has already happened, is that uh, some people may have had their feelings hurt, some people may have felt like they've been overlooked, uh, it's, it, it happens because we're people, right? We're sinful people and, and we hurt other people's feelings, hopefully not intentionally, but, but it happens. Uh, and so as we go through uh, our growing pains, uh, I just want to, to encourage you, uh, if you feel for any reason like any complaint or any suggestion you've had, if you felt like you've ever been slighted, uh, I sure believe that it was unintentional. Uh, and that if the person who slighted you uh, knew it, they would feel terrible about that. And so uh, I, I would just ask you uh, for grace uh, for what has gone before uh, and for grace going forward. And that if there is such a time where you feel like uh, there has been an issue where you've been neglected, that you, you don't let that fester because a festering problem uh, means that we're not communicating. It means the division of the church. It means har- compromising unity. Uh, and that's when you get problems in church. So communication is always the way to handle our problems. Uh, if you bring a problem to me, I promise to do the very best I can to resolve that problem. And I'm sure uh, all the elders feel exactly the same. So uh, let's resolve our problems. Let's talk about these things. Let's not let them fester. Let's not let anything threaten the unity of our body. All right. So let's look at how the apostles resolve this problem as we come to verses 2 to 4. And what we see here is that threats to church harmony must be addressed quickly and effectively. Again, these apostles never downplayed the problem. They owned the problem. They said it was theirs. And they also recognized, though, that they did not personally have the time to deal with this problem themselves because they were supposed to be ministering the word. And, And it's not their calling to deal with that. Uh, As a church grows, more and more people have to step up, they have to get involved, they have to take ownership of the ministry so that uh, things don't fall through the cracks and so that the church will continue uh, to thrive. And and so the apostles delegated the authority to others to handle this particular problem. And, you know, at first glance, uh, this sounds condescending in a way, doesn't it? It says... Uh, you know, it is not desirable for us to wait on tables as though that is somehow beneath them. And that's kind of how I had read it in the past. I read a whole lot of commentaries and they all agreed that that was not uh, the sense of of this word at all. Uh, Where it says it was not desirable that we wait on tables. The word for desire uh, is the Greek word areston and it means pleasing to God. So a proper translation is really, it would not be pleasing to God for us to wait tables when his calling to us was to go proclaim the word. Remember in Acts chapter one, he was speaking to the 12 disciples and he said, you are to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. That was their calling. It's other people's calling to do the administrative tasks of the church. And that's what the apostles were trying to get across is that we have our calling. Now we need to raise up others uh, so that they can do things that they are called to do. And it's not that the task wasn't worthwhile or necessary. It was both of those things. It's just that the apostles, their mission and their calling was the proclamation of the word. Now I want you to see here the congregational nature of how this problem was handled. Uh, The apostles did not Uh, jammed down the throats of the congregation how we were going to do this. They made a suggestion. They said, uh, let's let's have seven guys. We'll appoint these guys, and and they can be overseeing this ministry to the widows. 
uh, and then the church voted on it and the plan was implemented. So uh, it's a very congregational form of church and that's the way we've modeled ourselves in a congregational form of government. And we can see though that the, the church really valued this work and we can, we can see that by the qualifications that they insisted that these guys have. And they also uh, laid hands on them, conferring, delegating this authority to them. And so uh, you can see that this is very important to these apostles. It's just that it was not going to be their ministry. It was going to be the ministry of others. So we're a congregational church, uh, even though we're elder-led, and, and you have a vote, uh, just like the apostles in the first, or the, the people in the congregation in the first century did. You voted uh, to buy this building, you voted to call a pastor, you vote for the installation of elders, you vote on the budget, and that's how it ought to be. Uh, that's wh where we get our congregational form of government from. Uh, it follows the model that we see here uh, in Acts chapter 6. And so these guys choose seven men. Uh, their qualifications are that they have to be full of the Holy Spirit and to have wisdom. And to be full of the Holy Spirit means that your life is directed by God. You're being led by God and you have spiritual wisdom and spiritual discernment. And that means you're making wise decisions. And so those are the qualifications uh, that these men ought to have. And so uh, the apostles, uh, they, they say, just pick from among these guys seven men and let's put them in charge. Now, what I want you to notice here is that uh, the apostles were not going to oversee these guys. They were giving this ministry over uh, to these people. They wanted them to take responsibility for this ministry. And that's something that is needed in all churches. Uh, we need to be able to assign others to, to be over a ministry and then know that that ministry is going to be taken care of uh, without the leaders having to oversee it. Uh, and so as we grow, we hope to do more and more ministry in Grace Redeemer Community Church. And, and I know that many of you have very good ideas about what you would like to see done, what kind of ministries we can do in this church. And, and we certainly encourage you uh, to bring those ideas to us. But uh, recognize that if you bring us an idea, you are more than likely going to be appointed chairman of that committee and assigned with the task of getting that job done. So be careful what you bring to us because you may find yourself tasked with a great ministry. And I hope that, that you will take that on uh, because many of you have great ideas and we would love to see some of these ministries done. Uh, but of course, we need you to be involved and we would like you uh, to oversee what it is that, that uh, you want to minister. So it's interesting. We see these seven guys, we see them appointed and we're told that they're supposed to wait on tables, but we never actually see them waiting on tables. What they're actually doing is they're going out and they're evangelizing. They're spreading the word, right? When you look at Stephen's ministry in Acts chapter 6 and more in chapter 7, he's a preacher. And when we get to chapter 8 with Philip, he's supposed to be waiting on tables, but he's also a preacher. He's evangelizing. And so these guys have a two-pronged ministry, right? They're waiting tables on the one hand, but when they're not doing that, they're out preaching and proclaiming the word. And the apostles also have a two-pronged ministry. We see in verse 4 that they prayed, they had a ministry of prayer, and then they had a ministry of proclamation of the word. So these guys knew that you need to be in prayer before you can proclaim the word. And, and so we pray uh, in this church. We pray 
uh, before the uh, service. We pray during the service. We pray uh, when we have our prayer meetings. We understand that we need to be uh, a church in prayer. And uh, if we are going to plead uh, with uh, God for men, we also, or plead with men for God, to God, we need also to plead uh, with God for men. And so we go to God in prayer asking uh, for the souls of men to be saved. Well, now we're going to see uh, the commissioning, the selecting and the commissioning of these uh, seven men. And we'll see here that a, a successful church needs the participation of the entire body. The apostles put forward a suggestion. The congregation liked the idea, uh, and they identified these seven guys. The, the congregation chose the seven guys. The, the apostles did not, and they chose seven men who were full of the Holy Spirit. And of course, it's no accident that uh, Stephen is mentioned first and Philip is mentioned second because their stories are about to be told in the next few chapters uh, in the book of Acts. Uh, this Philip, by the way, is not Philip the Apostle. This is Philip who will become known as the Evangelist. It's a separate uh, person. We don't know anything of the other five guys. Uh, they all have Greek names. Uh, so some scholars think that, that these were Greek men who were appointed to solve a problem with Greek widows. Uh, but other scholars say, no, uh, Philip and Andrew were apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ, and they had Greek names, but they were Jews. Uh, so more than likely, uh, probably it was, it was Greek men and, and uh, Greek Jews and uh, Hebrew Jews who just happened to have Greek names who were appointed over this ministry uh, because it would be more fair for them all to deal with this problem of how they were going to uh, deal with uh, administration of, of feeding uh, these, these uh, Hellenistic widows. One thing that Luke does tell us uh, is, is a little bit about Nicholas, that, that he was a proselyte, uh, which means that he was not a Jew originally. He became a Jew uh, from uh, being a Gentile, and also that he told us that he was from Antioch. And that's interesting because Antioch is going to become uh, the missionary center uh, for this new faith. Uh, the, the, the believers were first called Christians at Antioch, and Paul began his missionary journeys from Antioch. And so here you have uh, Luke introducing Antioch to the narrative uh, right now. Well, now that these seven guys had been chosen, uh, the apostles lay their hands on them, which is a conferring of authority and a delegation of duty to these guys. And, and that is a pattern that we see in the Old Testament. When Moses was transferring authority to Joshua, he laid hands on Joshua and said, this is now your duty, your task uh, to lead these folks into uh, the promised land. And we see uh, the laying on of hands throughout the New Testament to confer authority to delegate uh, power to another person. And so here we have a problem, and we have a problem solved. We're not told any more about it, but we just assume from the text that, that this solution worked. And we see that, this, the, that the crisis in the church was avoided because of solid leadership and congregational participation. Satan wanted to bring this church down, didn't he? But this is God's church. And God's church will never fail because God's people take direction from God and listen to God and the church continues to thrive. And in verse 7, we're told that the word of God kept on spreading and the number of disciples continued to increase in Jerusalem and so much so that a great many priests were becoming obedient to the faith. Isn't that interesting? These Jewish priests now are becoming uh, obedient to the faith. Now, 
uh, it was estimated that there were probably eight to 10,000 uh, Jewish priests who would come and, and do duty at the temple. Uh, but these were guys with regular jobs. They were tradesmen. Uh, so 50 weeks of the year, they're doing their regular job, whatever it may be. And then two weeks of the year, they're on rotation. They're coming to the temple uh, to do ministry at the temple. And so during these two weeks, during their service, these guys are being converted. And then they're going back home to wherever it was that they were from. And they're spreading the word where they're going. And so you can, you can see it like a spider web, how it's just branching out everywhere. And of course, this was a great cause for concern for the Jewish elite, the people who did not want the gospel spreading. And so uh, this is at least in part uh, the reason why the actual physical persecution against these new Christians broke out, which we're going to see with the martyrdom of Stephen uh, beginning uh, in chapter 7 as we get to that story in, in the coming weeks. You know, this is a great little passage. Uh, you know, it's just kind of stuck in the middle here. Uh, and we as Christians, you know, we're always looking for these mountaintop experiences. And it's so wonderful when we have these mountaintop experiences. But, you know, most of life is spent in the mundane, uh, in the everyday, in the day-to-day -day drudgery of life, you know. And that's what was going on uh, with this church here. Uh, you know, if, if, if you have a job, if you've ever had a job, uh, that you have a plan for your day, but then a fire pops up and you have to put it out. And if you don't, that problem is going to, get, going to become much bigger. It can interfere with the job that you're supposed to be doing. You've got to deal with this fire and you're not doing your work. And that's what was happening in the first century church. And that's what will happen and has happened uh, at Grace Redeemer Church. You know, things constantly arise that have to be dealt with or it's going to become a bigger issue. And so what we see here is this new church uh, dealing with this outside issue that they didn't expect to arise and figuring out how they're going to best administer themselves due to their growing size and, they, and how to protect uh, church unity. All at the same time, trying not to neglect their main call, which of course is proclamation of the word. That's the thing that they are here to do. And so how are they going to solve these problems? At Grace Redeemer, uh, you know, in the six years that we've been in existence, you guys have dealt with all kinds of problems, right? You started out as a house church with just a few members, and then you grew, and then you moved into a building that you rented, and that created certain challenges because you didn't have access to the building at all times that you would have liked to when you were under somebody else's rule. And, and then you, you bought this building, but this building needed a whole lot of work, and, and all kinds of problems came up with this building. And and churches like that, right? Day-to-day, -day, mundane, messy little problems that we have to resolve. Uh, and so this uh, little passage here gives us a great uh, set uh, or a great window into how we are supposed to resolve uh, church problems and, and how we deal with just the practical problems of everyday church life. And so I want to draw out some lessons from this passage. And the first lesson I see is that the early church was concerned with the spiritual and the physical health of its members. It's very important that we preach the word and that people are saved, but it's also important that we take care of the people that we have been entrusted with. And the apostles knew that they had to minister the word. That was their primary calling. They're going about, they're trying to make disciples, but the physical needs of the people was a necessary thing, but it had become a distraction because they couldn't handle it all. They were just being spread too thin. Uh, they knew they needed to, to minister to those physical needs, but they, they just didn't have the ability to do it all. 
And so uh, by ministering to the needs of these widows, the proclamation of the word was going to suffer. And so they had to get more people involved. And they found willing and capable volunteers who would step up and and who would uh, understand that their calling was to be involved and to help with the work uh, the, 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 so that the primary work of the church, the proclamation of the word, would not be lost. And, and so we too, we want to be concerned with the physical needs uh, of our body. And like I said, we rally around so well the physical needs of our body. And we need to continue to do that as we grow and we have more members. And as we, even as a congregation, as we age, we're going to have more physical needs that need to be dealt with. And so uh, we're just always going to have the need for people to step up and help in those situations so that Uh, We are always able to proclaim the word and and the proclamation of the word does not get lost. So uh, caring for the physical needs of our people is something that we all can do. And uh, I encourage us all to do it. And just like we said uh, with Philip and with Stephen, these guys used the ministering to the widows as an opportunity to preach the gospel. So there's always an opportunity to preach. And I, I encourage you as you're serving people to preach the word as you do it. The second thing I see is that the church was flexible enough to adapt its structure to changing needs. You know, sometimes we have to thank God for church problems because they give us the ability or the necessity to look at everything that we're doing and how we can do it better, more efficiently, more effectively, or if we need to be doing it all, if they're doing it at all, or if there maybe is something better that we could be doing with our time. Uh, Every organization, not just the church, has to continually evaluate itself, uh, look at itself, see how it operates, and see uh, what the necessities are and what the things are that can go. Uh, An organization that becomes stagnant, that that always does things the same way uh, over and over and over again and never looks to the future, uh, is sure to die. And that's, that's true not just in a church. That's true in all businesses. That's why the best leaders of businesses are always looking toward the future and and evaluating where they're going and putting structures in place that they don't need yet, but they know that they're going to need in the future. Uh, I love how our Sunday school teachers uh, started uh, their ministry to this church. They were asking for volunteers that we don't need yet because they knew and hoped and prayed that we were going to need those volunteers in the future. And so they're trying to staff uh, classes for people anticipating that we're going to have lots of children in the future. And, and I think that is visionary. And I think that's the kind of uh, thinking that we need in this church. And we're going to continue to need in this church uh, if God continues to bless us to grow. The third thing I see is that God calls everyone to ministry, but he doesn't call us all to the same ministry. The apostles had their gift and their calling. Jesus told them, you will be my witnesses. And so that's their calling. Uh, And they're doing what they were supposed to be doing. Other people had to step up and do the things that they were called to do. And so uh, we see, though, that even in the exercise of those gifts, they get to be evangelists too. Uh, And so we all have different gifts. Uh, To many of you out here, to stand up here uh, and to give a message would be the most terrifying thing that you could ever be asked to do. Uh, But to me, to be asked to go sit in that sound booth, that would be the most terrifying thing that I could ever be asked to do. Uh, So we all have different gifts and ministries that we can be involved in. And so uh, know what you're good at. Know what you're called to do. Uh, If you don't know what you're good at, if you don't know what your gifts are, ask people close to you. They'll tell you what you're good at. 
take a spiritual gift survey. And once you do that, uh, just get about doing what you're gifted at and, and help the church where you can. Uh, ask God how you can use those gifts that he's given you for his glory. And finally, solving problems requires everyone's cooperation. The apostles heard the complaint. They owned the complaint. They admitted the problem. They worked on a solution. They enlisted workers. They delegated authority. And the church continued to grow. And when we, as a church, experience growing pains, uh, we should see that as a blessing. Uh, we will have to learn, as a church, to trust God even more as we grow, right? Because we don't know how we're going to solve these problems, but God does, right? But God. When we have problems, there's always but God. And he is there to help solve our problems. But also, we're going to have to learn to trust each other more, to assign tasks, tasks out and know that they're going to be completed because you all have giftings uh, that, that you can use for God's glory. No one person can do it all, right? If one person tries to do it all, they are going to make a mess of everything and they're going to burn themselves out. And not only that, but they're going to stifle the gifts of the other people in this church who may have the gift of whatever it may be to, to step up and help with a certain thing. So uh, if you're good at teaching, train others to teach. If you're good at music, train up the next generation of worship uh, uh, band member. If you're good in the sound booth, train up the next generation of people to be in the sound booth. Uh, there's always uh, ways that we can train up the next group of people. So I pray that God would choose to grow our church and I want us to have an effective witness here in Garland and I think he's doing that. And I pray that we will learn these lessons from, the, from this passage you know, there's no great theology in this passage. There's no mountaintop experience in this passage. This is just the day-to-day -day grind of running a church and how do we do it? How do we maintain unity in the body? And how do we keep this church focused on the proclamation of the word so that we can grow uh, and reach our neighborhood uh, with the gospel? That's what this passage is about. And so I pray uh, that we will be like these seven churches, full of the Holy Spirit, full of wisdom, uh, and if we are those things, I think God is going to continue uh, to bless our church and to continue to grow us. Uh, but it starts with you, every one of you, and it starts with me. Let's pray. Lord God, uh, we do thank you for this little passage that shows us how to administer uh, the, the local church, how to deal with a, a seemingly simple problem, Lord, but yet a problem that threatened uh, this early church. And Lord, uh, they understood that Satan is a schemer and that Satan wants to get in the middle of everything that this church wanted to do. And he has multiple methods, Lord, for how to trip people up. And when outside persecution didn't work and when inside corruption didn't work, then he turned to distraction uh, and trying to get the church off of the word of God, Lord. And, and we thank you for this group of apostles who recognized it and who uh, came up with an idea for how they could handle this problem, how to administer the church. Lord, I pray that you would give us the same wisdom for when we come upon problems, Lord, uh, that we would be able to follow the lessons from this first century church and that we would uh, learn to be full of the Holy Spirit, full of wisdom, and be able to tackle our problems head on, Lord, uh, dealing with the people who have brought this issue and that we would handle these problems with grace, Lord, and that you would continue to grow our church. We thank you, Lord, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.